Jeremy, guess what? Uh, what? We have another listener voicemail in our mailbag. Do you want to hear it? Woo! All right. Doc line. Let's do it. Here we go. Hey, Dr. Friends. So my husband and I are thinking about trying to have kids in the next year or two. And I'm going to be 32 in a couple months. But I've been on the pill since I was 15. Should I be worried about my ability to get pregnant? It's a good one, right? Yeah. I think that's a question that I hear a lot. And I, I think we, we can bring on a wonderful guest to help answer it and many other women's health related questions. What do you think, Jer? Yeah, women's health is a huge topic all the time and certainly has been uh, uh, an even more focused topic uh, recently. And I think contraception is one of the the facets or branches of women's health that just is so important right now. And you and I have some knowledge in this area, but I also think that we it's been a while since we've gone over it. And I'm excited to hear you know, what's out there and, and what's effective. And maybe at that point, also get back to answering uh, the listener's question about, you know, should you be worried about uh, your fertility afterwards? So yeah, let's bring somebody on. Let's do this. Perfect. Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name is Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. All right, Julie, how are we going to answer that question today? Well, I think we should bring on one of our doctor friends, as we are wont to do, especially when we have a topic that's not exactly our 100% area of concentration. So I think we should bring on Dr. Laura Larson. She's an obstetrician gynecologist at Rush University Medical Center. She has a very impressive CV. Her undergraduate training was in Georgetown Med School. She went to Northwestern Residency at University of Illinois at Chicago. She's an advocate with Physicians for Reproductive Health, and she's a very dedicated teacher and professor and patient advocate. And we are so, so happy to have her on. Thank you, Dr. Larson, for, for being with us today. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So I guess just off the bat, I mean, to open things up and to answer this listener's question, because I think the answer might be pretty straightforward. <laughs> I will defer to you, the expert. How would you counsel this this gal? Yeah. So this is probably something that I talk about all the time. You know, I go to dinner with my girlfriends and this is this is one of the more common topics of conversation, especially in you know, I'm a I'm 37, so this is what we've been talking about for the last, you know, five years of our lives. So I think the thing that, you know, pisses us off is that we spend most of our life trying not to get pregnant. And then you have this very short period where you're like, oh, I want to be pregnant. And it's like, what the hell? Like yeah. I've been, I've been trying for so long to avoid this. And now it's like, okay, like I want to get pregnant. Right. And if it doesn't happen right away, it also kind of freaks us out. Right. Because we all, most of us like to plan it. And most of us are planners when it comes to that. So that being said, contraception itself does not lead to any decrease in fertility. And this has been showed over and over and over again in multiple studies. So the things that are going to be different from an 18-year-old and a 32-year-old is going to be your age, right? Mm -hmm. So there is an age-related fertility decline, but in terms of like, does the birth control cause any 
changes in fertility? No. And we can emphatically say it doesn't. Great. Do you feel like there's that some misconceptions of oral contraceptive pills, like this listener was talking about saying being she was being on the on the pill since she was 15? Do you feel like there might be some misconceptions that OCPs cause infertility that might create barriers to, you know, accessing effective, reversible contraceptive choices? Yeah, I think there's lots of myths when it comes to birth control. And this is probably one of the biggest ones, right? I, I see patients a lot who will come to me and be like, I don't want to get pregnant right now, but I'm just going to go off my pill or I just want to go off my birth control because I just want to take a break. I just want to give it, take a break and see what my body's going to do, right? I think that all comes from that myth of if you're on it for a long time, it's going to do something to your body so that you're not going to be able to get pregnant in the future. That being said, it doesn't do that at all. Like we're all born with a certain, <laughs> a certain number of eggs. Those eggs, mm-hmm. you know, decline with your age and birth control um, doesn't help it. And it doesn't hurt it at all. You know, we can get into like the different types of birth control and, you know, what they do in more detail. But I think that's one of the the many myths that we see, you know, other myths are like things like causing cancer, scarring, stuff like that, which really aren't true anymore. The, uh, points that you made there were like hit so home with me because of the anecdote of like what we freak out about just in general, like pregnancy just leads to a lot of freaking out on all sides of it. And I also think that to be in medicine, we tend to be planners in type A. And then I certainly married a type A person. Mm -hmm. And so like you sit there and you're like, okay, we're going to go off the pill and like, yeah, pregnancy is going to happen. And you're just like, that's just not the way it works. Like, like infertility technically isn't even really discussed until you usually get about a year of actual trying. And then in addition, this is another thing we've talked about on this podcast, a ton of like comparative and, and social media and all that stuff. And so you just can't help but hear all your friends who are like, yeah, first try, we did it. Right. Yeah, you're <laughs> like, oh, I just going to throw you off a bridge. You know, like I, I was friends with you, but now I want to punch you in the face. Um, so I just, I thought anecdotally speaking, that just hit really home with me. You did do a good segue there of going into the different contraceptive methods. Kind of like, let's, let's maybe just start breaking those down and actually talk about what the real pros and cons of them are and what the side effects could be. So there are a ton of options. When I start talking to my patients, my friends, I'm always like, just because one method didn't work for you or just because you didn't like one method does not mean that birth control is not for you. Because at this point, birth control is like this broad spectrum of different things and there are a gazillion options. You know, I'll start with the most effective options first and then, you know, we can go through all of them, right? So The most effective are um, what we call long-acting reversible contraception. And people may have heard LARC. Um, You might have heard that like term thrown around. And those are basically IUDs, so intrauterine devices, and the implant that goes in your arm. The IUDs, there's a few types. The hormonal IUD, so that one has a hormone called progesterone in it. It thins the lining of the uterus, and it's extremely effective, and it makes your periods lighter. Some people even don't get periods at all, but for everyone, their periods are going to get a lot lighter. The other option, like I said, that's really long-acting and effective is the implant. The implant goes in your arm. That one also has that same hormone called progesterone in it, but that one acts all throughout the body. And the biggest side effect with that one is that you're going to have irregular bleeding. So to get a tiny bit technical with everyone, in order to have regular cycles, you need a balance of estrogen and progesterone. Those are the two, you know, the two hormones. And if you are giving someone a progesterone that goes all throughout your body without counteracting that with an estrogen, you're going to have irregular bleeding and spotting. 
So that's why the implant that goes in your arm leads to that irregular bleeding and spotting. The IUD, because most of the progesterone acts locally inside the uterus, doesn't have that same side effect of having the irregularity, if that makes sense. The IUDs, there's a few different types of progesterone IUDs. We don't need to like get into like, you know, their different brand names, but they act between three to eight years. There, it does take a procedure in the office. So that's something that just be okay with. It's, a, it's a, like a speculum, just like when you get a pap smear, but a little more invasive than that. You know, it is I'm not going to say it doesn't hurt. It's fast, but it, it can hurt. But then it's in and then it's a leave it and forget it method. The implant lasts up to five years. So that's pretty great. And then there's the copper IUD, which is the other IUD that goes in the uterus. And that one um, lasts for up to 12 years. And that one has no hormones at all. So that one's awesome for patients who are like, I don't want any hormone. I don't want, you know, no hormone touching my body. That one, you still get periods every month, but they might become a little bit heavier or a little bit crampier. So for someone who already has heavy, crampy periods, it may not be the best option for them. So that's like the basics of those long acting ones. The biggest benefit is it's super effective. They're all, you know, over 99% effective and it's a one-time in-office procedure. Then you don't have to remember it anymore. You know, remembering to take a pill every day is hard for most of us. And then the side effects, we just kind of talk to the patients about what you want, right? Like, do you want to get your period every month? Do you not want to get your period every month? Do you want your periods to be lighter? You know, and different patients mean different things to them. That's kind of how we start the conversation. Yeah. Talking about this long-acting reversible contraception, I love that it's right there in the name, right? Yeah. The word reversible is right there in the name. So kind of like this listener's question about being on oral contraceptive pills, I'm assuming, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that when you remove the implant or remove the IUD, that generally return to fertility should be unchanged. Is that right? Yeah. So with you know, the IUDs and the implants, they work differently than the pills do in terms of contraception, in terms of how you prevent pregnancy. They don't generally work by preventing ovulation. So the pill works by preventing ovulation. These methods work by either thickening the cervical mucus, so the sperm literally cannot make it into the uterus to meet the egg, or in terms of the copper one, it actually kills the sperm. The copper, it just kills the sperm. So what's nice is you're still ovulating every month. Mm -hmm. So as soon as I remove that device, you can get pregnant right away. I'm not joking when I've told, heard stories of people getting pregnant like that same day, <laughs> like they have gone home and they have gotten pregnant because they're still ovulating. Sure. So there's no reason that they can't. People come to you and they are not on contraception, right? So they're coming in with maybe an interest in contraception. Is this where you generally start or like how would you usually start the conversation with them? Do you usually start with these because they're the longest acting and most effective or do you kind of just gauge their interest? So I normally keep it very open-ended. You know, I walk in and I'm like, you know, hey, what have you heard about birth control? You know, what have you been on before? What have your friends been on? What do you like? What do you don't like? And what, what kind of are your goals, right? There are patients who walk into my office and they're like, I don't want anything that a provider has to do to me, right? I want something that I can completely control on my own. Or other patients are like, I don't want anything that's going to change my periods. Okay. So, right. And, and I normally start the conversation very, very open-ended like that. And then after I kind of gauge the patient's desires, interests, things that are important to them, then I start going into the different tiers of methods. The IUDs are a procedure that involve having like a speculum exam. And I would imagine that some of these can start younger than people have usually had a speculum exam. What's the youngest age that you could start this at, theoretically? 
there's no limit for it at all. And I have placed them on, you know, young girls. IUDs can also be used actually for girls and women who have very heavy periods to help control their bleeding. So I've placed it on people before they've even had sex before. It's definitely a conversation that we have. It's definitely a, it's a different type of exam. All my exams are done very, you know, gently and, and try to be very trauma informed. But with a 13 year old, I'm obviously going to spend a lot more time explaining what the exam is going to look like to them. And, you know, there's, there's things we can do to make it more comfortable, right? There's anti-anxiety medications I can give people. We can give, there's some pain medications we can give people. In some instances, we can actually give some lidocaine, so some numbing medication into the cervix to help with that. And again, there's benefits and risks to all that. So it's a lot of that's just more of a conversation about what patients want. Yeah, Laura, it's interesting you bring that up because I feel like I've seen a fair amount of talk on social media on like Instagram Reels and TikTok about kind of backlash from women who have been through procedures, whether it was an IUD or a cervical biopsy or elite procedure where the, the standard of care, at least when they had it, was no local anesthesia whatsoever. And it's just fine. It's just a little pinch. I mean, obviously, we're talking about a different situation with an IUD insertion versus like taking a large cervical biopsy. But it's interesting to see, you know, these women <laughs> sharing their stories of like, this experience kind of sucked. And, and we were just expected to be like, oh, it's it's just going to be a little bit of pressure, you know, and it is, yeah. it's so difficult because it's hard. Everybody experiences pain and that sort of like right. odd organ visceral pain like that. If you've never had it before, it can be very jarring. So, I mean, I don't know, like, how do you, how would you like counsel the patient before an IUD insertion about what should they sort of expect to feel or what's the, the spectrum that you've seen? So it's definitely more invasive, right, than a speculum exam, right? It's mm -hmm. it's a speculum exam followed me by me opening the cervix, mm -hmm. which causes pain, and then placing something inside your uterus, right? So a speculum exam is just the first step in those three steps. So it's definitely it's definitely a more painful experience. It depends on what people have experienced before. Mm -hmm. Women who have had vaginal births tend to actually have a lot less pain than people who haven't, right? Because their cervix is already open. Mm -hmm. And historically, right, like IUDs, especially, you know, we're not even talking about like the old, so 1970s IUDs, but like these IUDs that came out in the 90s, when they first came out, they were actually only FDA approved for people who had had deliveries before. And then we, you know, have obviously been doing them a lot more on people who haven't had children, but it is more painful, right? Yeah. I tell people it's going to be painful. Um, <laughs> you I, be honest I, with them, right? I'm it's like, very this honest. is going to hurt, um, but maybe it only it, hurt for a really brief period of right. time. So a few things. So I tell them it's going to hurt. Um, mm -hmm. I tell them that it will be fast. You know, I can do an IUD insertion in mm -hmm. 15 seconds, right? But honestly, it feels like getting punched in the uterus. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have had two IUDs. I had one before I had my baby and one after I had my baby. The one after I had my baby, I asked the provider, I was, I was like, so when are you going to do it? She's like, I'm done. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and the first IUD, I literally felt like I got punched in the uterus and I, and I screamed. Yeah. But I would still do it again, right? Because it was like, I don't want to take a pill every day. I don't, I like, I like the lack of you know, other side effects. I don't get a period. Mm -hmm. You know, I love all those things about it. Absolutely. So yeah. So I tell patients that. And then I do talk about options, right? Like there's been a million studies that have been done about this. Um, and we, you know, it's probably like one of the more common studies that is done in the family planning community is like trying to figure out 
pain management for in-office procedures. And we've studied everything from doing like a topical lidocaine to giving people Norco's to giving people Tordol injections to giving people um, anti-anxiety medications. It's all been studied, right? Mm. None of it really does anything. There are, in the right patient, um, a, para, a paracervical block, so li- a lidocaine numbing medication can help. But the problem is, is that hurts itself, right? And so you have to, it's three points injection in the vagina. So so for a lot of people, the thought of being like, okay, I'd rather just do this and have to get those three injection points. And so it's kind of a risk benefit because the topical stuff doesn't doesn't do anything at all. Yeah. Ibuprofen, it helps with cramping afterwards, but doesn't really help with cramping with insertion. But yeah, I think the biggest thing is anticipatory guidance, right? Like, and that's a lot of what birth control is, right? Because it's a lot of all of medicine, but especially with birth control, because there are so many different options. Totally. If you don't tell people what they're going to expect, they're going to feel like they were duped into something and they're not going to be happy with it, right? But if I tell someone that this is that this is going to hurt, like, or I tell someone that this is what your bleeding profile is going to be, they're more likely to, you know, be happy with it. And because they've chosen it then. How about going on to like more short term or more like, like what we would consider like yeah. the pill, like that, those types right. of options. I know there's like eight billion different brands out there, but yeah. how do you break yeah. it down for someone who's like, ooh, me likey, I'm interested. So we talk about the IUDs implants first, and then we kind of go, the next tier is actually the Depo-Provera, so it's the injection, right? Mm-hmm. That's every three-month injection, again, just progesterone. It's quite common among teenagers who, you know, I have patients of all ages, but, it's, but who want a method that they can... Don't have to remember to take a pill every day. A lot of school health centers actually have it in their clinics, mm-hmm. but they don't have to get a procedure either, right? They don't want to get a speculum exam. They don't want to get something placed in their arm. Sure. So that one's great, but it does, that one actually has the most side effects out of all of mm-hmm. our um, options. That's the only, and I want to be clear about this, that is the only birth control that has um, been shown to have weight gain associated with it. Every other form of birth control, the pill, the IUD, the implant, none of them are associated with weight gain. And that's been studied a million times. Okay. And depo can also be associated with some like hair loss um, as well. So there are more side effects, but you know, for some patients, it's a great option. Um, And then yeah, pill. So now we get down to, we put actually the birth control pill, the birth control patch and the birth control ring all in the same category. Cause they're all methods that have both estrogen and progesterone in them. And they're all like what we call like to call like cyclic methods, meaning that you take them for a period of time and then you don't take them for somewhere about five days. That's when you get your period and then you start it up again. That's traditionally the way these are all done. And they all have the same hormones. Like I said, they all have estrogen and progesterone. It just depends on how you want to take it. So the pill, you take a pill every day. Like you said, there are a million different types of pills and a lot of it's just marketing and gimmick. (laughs) They all have the same estrogen in them. And then there's different generations of progesterones. I have a pill that I start with at almost everyone. And it's just like a generic like pill that has like a middle of the road amount of estrogen and progesterone and um, doesn't have much spotting associated with it. And people tend to do well. And then if people don't like that, I either can go up on the estrogen, down on the estrogen, up on the progesterone, down on the progesterone, and then we just kind of tweak it. Okay. So that's also something that if you don't like the side effects of the pill that you've been getting, you can tweak it. And there are ways to do that. 
it is some trial and error that you have to go through, but it's it's definitely possible. And, you know, most OB-GYNs are really comfortable doing that. It sounds really customizable, which is nice. Yeah. I don't I don't remember that from when we were doing this, Julia, really about being able to like customize it so much to being like, mm-hmm. I assume you would just be communicating with these patients over the first few months and really trying to, to harner down on that, which is cool. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Yeah, there's so many options now. It's 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 kind of unbelievable. And then, yeah, the NuvaRing, like I said, the ring that goes in the vagina has those exact same hormones. But instead of taking a pill every day, you just put the ring in your vagina for three weeks at a time. Take it out for a week, get your period, and put a new ring in. And then the patch is the same thing, except it's just a patch, like a nicotine patch. And then you put a new patch on every week, except for that fourth week, and you get your period. Yeah, so they're all the same. It just, again, depends on how you, what's going to be easiest for your life in terms of how you're going to remember to take it. My personal and professional mind is remembering something about the oral contraceptives of having like a triphasic versus like a monophasic or something like that. Or basically, I remember it being like three different color pills mm-hmm. and like one that was all the same. Like, is that still a thing? It's a thing, but that was also a gimmick that was made by yeah. the, um, <laughs> the pill company. The so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the triphasics, the, the goal was to kind of match the amount of estrogen at different points in your cycle and like a so-called natural cycle. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't change the side effects. Um, so we don't we don't really do it anymore. Mm-hmm. It also makes things a lot more complicated when we're trying to customize it, right? When we're trying to figure out the right dose of estrogen and progesterone for someone. If we're on a triphasic pill, it's like almost impossible to do that. Yeah. And then the other th- cool thing you can do with all these methods is, I know I talked about how you use them and then don't for a week and you get your period. There's no medical reason why you have to get a period with any of these. You can just skip those sugar pills at the end of the pack and just start a new pack or just leave the NuvaRing in for four weeks and just not, and then just put a new one in after those four weeks and just never get a period. So um, I counsel a lot of my patients on just if they want to skip their pill because they're going on vacation or just they never want to get the period, they're all reasonable things to do. That's awesome. And that's not unhealthy. It's not unhealthy to not have the period in that instance. No, because the reason you're not getting a period is because the line of the uterus is so thin because of the hormones you're getting that there's nothing to shed. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. That's great. I have a couple just off questions and maybe we'll fill them in as we go, but I feel like I remember something about the depot shot and bone density. Is Mm -hmm. that a thing? Yeah, it is a thing. Long-term depot use can decrease your bone density, but it's completely reversible. So as soon as you stop the depot shot, you shoot back up to your same age bone mass as you would have been if you weren't on depot. So someone who has like a lot of risk factors for, you know, osteoporosis, we might not put on depot, but for an average person, it's definitely not a concern anymore. In a specific population, so like we we treat a lot of athletes, right? And so especially in our collegiate athletes, Julie works with um, a, a university, like those athletes that are coming in and we know there's a lot of body image stuff and they're running a lot and the calories can be an issue. Is that somebody at depot would be a bad idea because of bone density or because they're so young, it's not that big of a deal? So it might be an issue for them. I actually think the bigger issue for them would be the weight gain. A lot of that with people, you know, people who are having like body image issues, stuff like that, you're not going to want to put them on a method that's going to, we know is going to cause weight gain. But yeah, you know, potentially someone who has that athletic triad, you know, we might skip depot for them for sure. Okay, cool. 
so playing off this fact that we do sports medicine, we take a lot of like, uh, we get people with like hip and pelvic and back pain all the time. And I, I don't know how often, Julie, do you get this? I, I feel like people sometimes ask me like, could the IUD be causing my pain? Mm. Do you ever get that question, Julie? I, I feel have, like I get it. I have a few times. And it's yeah. hard to answer in our situation, obviously, because I'm like, I don't, I don't think it's probably causing your right. pain. I usually say no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, but, but I also don't know if I'm completely qualified to hundred percent tell them. So maybe you can address like once once it's in and assuming it's successfully placed, like should people be feeling anything afterward? No, for like the first few days afterward, yes, right? Like you're gonna your body is basically trying like you put this thing in your uterus and your uterus is like, what the hell did you do to me? Mm-hmm. And so it's it's kind of contracting down on it. So people will have cramping in those first few days and nothing that ibuprofen can't handle. If someone's continuing to have pain after that, then an an ultrasound is really needed mm-hmm. to make sure it's not um, malpositioned, so it's not in the wrong place, right? Because although this is extremely safe to do and we do them all the time, like every procedure has risks. You guys know that. Sure. And so sure. it could fall out, right? Or it could be in the cervix, so it could fall out partially. That could definitely be causing pain. Or it could be um, perforated. So, you know, anytime we put anything inside the uterus, there's a chance we could make a hole inside the uterus and the IUD could be somewhere else in the body or partially, you know, in uh, partially out of the uterus. So if someone is having like unexplained pain, you know, I get them an ultrasound, see where the IUD is. And if it's in the right place, it really shouldn't be. If anything, it actually helps a lot of patients with pain. People have endometriosis. Mm-hmm. It actually, you know, calms the whole system down because it's, the progesterone is really thinning all that endometrial lining. So it actually helps with the pain. Yeah. Great. I mean, it sounds like the risk of of the, those major risks of like perforation or malpositioning, Laura, from your experience and what you've read in the literature. I mean, my sense would be though, that's a pretty damn low risk. Oh yeah, it's like it's less than one percent. Yeah, if not for sure. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think sure. that goes without saying, but it's nice yeah. to say it to be like, here's yeah. a scary thing. It's extremely <laughs> yes. unlikely that it'll happen exactly. to you. Yes. And and like Jeremy, I think why you brought up the question was. Yeah, you know, 999 times out of a thousand, it probably isn't your IUD that's causing your pain. But I think it's Correct. a valid question to be like, well, I have a foreign object that lives in me now. Is that 100%. is that bad? And um, right. and I think I think we can all feel pretty confident the answer is no. And if we need more information, then you can get a pretty quick and easy ultrasound. One question I wanted to ask you, Laura, and I think it'll spawn a little bit of a fun conversation. <laughs> and by fun, I mean maybe scary. <laughs> I always get concerned in just all of healthcare, and I think we bring up a lot when there are either there is some type of barrier to receiving healthcare. So if that barrier is because of a financial barrier, because of someone, you know, insurance problems or physical barriers, you know, to being able to get adequate healthcare. And I think especially for for younger folks, I know you mentioned talking about treating younger girls for having dysfunctional uterine bleeding or something like that with mm-hmm. with effectively with giving them an IUD. Can you weigh in on some general, especially for like young, young women and young girls mm-hmm. and, you know, teenagers and adolescents, do you see concerns about barriers to their own sort of healthcare agency in, in looking into contraception and birth control options? And I know that varies from state to state, but what are you seeing here in the state of Illinois and, and how do you address that? Well, sex ed fucking sucks in this country. Right? Like, <laughs> Amen, and, sister like, friend. Yes. Yeah, right. Boom. And, yeah. and even in Illinois, it's mm-hmm. terrible, right? Mm-hmm. And so like there are school districts that are doing a really great job, not sure. to like, but in general, right, it, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. And I think most people get all their information from their friends or their family and 
some of that's true. Some of it's not. Mm. A lot of it's from TikTok now, right? Like I see patients, I'm sure you guys do too, like constantly are see like TikTok questions. So I think there's two things. One is like information, Mm -hmm. right? And then the other thing is how does a teenager get to a health clinic to get birth control, right? Mm -hmm. And so let's say they even have all the information, which most of them don't. A, they go to school, right? Most clinics are open during school hours, right? And then some people have great relationships with their parents and guardians, but other people don't. And like, how are they going to get to a clinic without, if they don't have a great relationship with them? And then like, how do you have a method and like not necessarily let everyone know that you have that method? So yeah, there's a ton of barriers. And then there's also like the barrier of like just trying to like navigate being like a woman in this society mm-hmm. and having like if you have a male partner and trying to like be a teenager and say that like I want you to use a condom or I want to be on birth control before we have sex and all of these things. And like if there's not the conversations about consent and the conversations about all that at the young age, how do they even go about these conversations? So Yes, a million barriers. That being said, (laughs) the law actually is like in Illinois is that anyone 13 and above has complete control over getting their own contraception. So um, you do not need parental notification at all. You can just come in, get birth control and go on with your day. And there's adolescent clinics and there are clinics, you know, we try to, in our clinic, try to do a lot to like providing like same day larks if someone comes in and like we have the IUDs in clinics, they don't have to come back. You know, there's a lot we try to do to make it accessible, but it's hard. And those situations are like, does insurance become an issue? So like, obviously, like most of these people are on their parents' insurance. So like, that's just another access question, I guess. It's like, how does insurance come into play here? If you're going to use your parents' insurance, they're going to see it. There are a lot of like free options available at Planned Parenthood, for example, like there's a sliding scale or they'll just give it to you for free if you can't pay. So you can go there and get contraception with no issue. Rush actually has an adolescent family center that they see tons of adolescents, like regardless of their ability to pay. So if an adolescent comes in and doesn't want to use their parents' insurance, they'll work with them. Mm. So there are ways to get around that. But again, they have to know about yeah. them, right? right? And so just trying to get the information out and the word out is is where the challenges arise. And then in the case where like, let, let's flip just the script one second to the, the child or the, the, the minor who has yeah. a good relationship and, and is being brought by their parents, are all of these methods that you talked about covered by insurance? Do you ever have to have the insurance conversation of like, this would be a good method for you, but it's not covered by your plan or anything like that? Very, very rarely. Um, Mm. With um, Obamacare, it was required for all these insurance methods to be covered in all the plans. Very occasionally, if someone, someone's parent works for a Catholic health, like Catholic institution, and an IUD won't be covered. But that's pretty much the only thing that we see. And in those instances, we can almost always figure out a way around it. We have grants and stuff available to help out those patients. That's good. That That's like reassuring to me. If somebody came from another state, which obviously is a hot topic these days, like if a 15 year old came from another state where they can't be a consented minor and came to Illinois, do they get treated like an Illinois mm-hmm. person? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. An Illinoisan? Illinoisian? I think the biggest thing is that, you know, talk to your provider about what's going to work best for you. There are like, we've kind of harped on this a lot, but I really want to get this point across that like, if you do not want to be pregnant right now, there is a method to help you not be pregnant, you know, and, and also like 
we just talked about the most like medical methods, right? There's like other things out there that exist too, right? There's, there's a new thing on the market called Fexi, which is um, actually changes the pH of your vagina and you uh, place it. Um, it's like a, you place it an applicator every time you have sex. So for some people who are like, I don't want something that I have to take every day. I don't want any hormones. Like that's an awesome option for some patients, like those natural family planning methods, like where you count the calendar days and check your temperature. Like that's a great option for some people, right? You know, condoms are also a good option if you're going to use them correctly. I just want people to be open and honest with like what, what they want and what their goals are. And we can work with you to figure something out. Is Fexi over the counter or is that something prescribed? No, that's a, that's a prescription. Yeah. Let's talk about plan B for a second. Just mm -hmm. like, has anything changed in that world? Is that still the go-to for, for that sort of situation? And when would people use that? Yeah. So plan B is over the counter, which is what's great. The best part about plan B it's over the counter for everyone, regardless of your age. So you can go in to Walgreens to get it. The Walgreens in Wicker Park, where I live, has it next to the gummy bears when you check out. So <laughs> it's like you literally Perfect. are like, yeah, it's like swiping through. I'm like, oh, okay. That is not every pharmacy in the city. It's just the Wicker Park pharmacy. <laughs> but um, it is a nice option. It is not a panacea by any stretch of the imagination. So it works if you happen to have sex before you ovulate, which it's hard to figure that out, right? And so it's really only effective in the first 72 hours after you've had sex, but it can be effective for up to five days. Biggest issue with plan B, it doesn't work if you have BMI over 30, like doesn't work at all. Although it's over the counter and that's great. I think it also gives people some false sense of security because they think that they took this pill and they're not going to get pregnant. There are other options for emergency contraception, but they all require either talking to a physician or going to physician. One of them is called Ella, and Ella is another pill, and that one maintains its effectiveness for the full five days after unprotected sex, and it doesn't have a BMI cutoff. So it's a great option. I actually will prescribe it to my patients to just keep in their medicine cabinet. So especially someone who says, you know, I don't want to get pregnant, but I'm not really interested in these birth control methods, or someone who chooses like a less effective option, like they want to use condoms. I'm just like, okay, that's, that's cool but why don't I just prescribe this? You can keep it in your medicine cabinet. And if the condom breaks or if you happen not to use one, you have this ready to go. The other issue with that is that most pharmacies don't carry it. We mm. actually did like a secret shopper thing recently. And most pharmacies had a special order it, which really defeats the purpose of an emergency contraceptive. So that's why I think it's really important if people are interested just to keep it in their medicine cabinet. And then the IUDs actually work for emergency contraception as well. We used to say that just the copper IUD worked, the non-hormonal one, but there was a big study in the New England Journal of Medicine last year that actually showed that the progesterone IUD was non-inferior, so as effective as the copper IUD for preventing pregnancy. So those are awesome. If someone's, you know, someone wants to come into the office, they are definitely the most effective emergency contraceptive option. And then you also have birth control for somewhere between, you know, eight to 12 years, depending on which method you choose. Do you ever think, because those are all, well, the ones you just said were not over the counter, but plan B is over the counter. Do you think we'll ever get to a point where there will be a contraception method that's over the counter? I think we're really close to having um, birth control pills over the counter, actually, especially in light of this Roe decision. There's been a lot more push for it. In some states, you can actually um, get it, just pharmacies can prescribe it. 
So you don't need a prescription. You can just go into the pharmacist. And they have a, like a set of questions that they can just ask. Illinois actually recently passed a law that we can start doing that in Illinois. The problem is, is that the pharmacist has not been trained as of yet. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're talking about all the great things about Illinois and all. So like they passed this law, they said, okay, cool. Pharmacists can start dispensing birth control, but there was no like rollout of it at all. Mm-hmm. So currently um, people are working on the rollout and trying to figure out like how the pharmacist can actually conceptualize this. But I would expect within the next year, we'll have it available. Just you can just walk into the pharmacy and they can get it. But I think taking it one step further and just getting it on the counter, like just even not talking to pharmacists is really close. Most people think, and I would agree that it's safer than Tylenol, right? We all know Tylenol is over the counter and not in, not super safe. <laughs> and um, birth control pills, like there's been, this has been studied for quite a while that people do a really good job of like, you know, if you give people a list of contraindications, like you can't take this if you you know had a blood clot in the past, you know, people actually are more conservative than they would be than the doctors are. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's really encouraging. I feel like I'm, I'm just happy. We've had a lot of talk about, I feel about access on this call. And I just, I don't know, that was really encouraging to me. Mm-hmm. We had a, a really great episode with Dr. Mara Heeman, who's a men's health specialist and neurologist up in Seattle, who did her training at Rush, who is rad as hell. Jeremy and I were surprised because when we asked her about a lot of these services that are advertised to men about erectile dysfunction and how you can visit this website and then you speak to a specialist and then they prescribe it for you. And we asked her, we were like, Mara, like, do you think that that's bullshit? And she was like, oh my God, absolutely no. Because these are low risk medications. You're removing a barrier, you know, for, in her case, she was explaining that men, you know, probably feel stigmatized to not want to go seek care or maybe have other you know, barriers to getting into access to care. And she was like, no, if we can get them these safe medications to these, to people that need it and they remove barriers, do you, and I, this is showing my own unawareness. Are there similar services out there for, 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 yeah, for people that are looking for birth control? Yeah, there's a ton. And a lot of them actually are crossover with the electrical dysfunction companies. Oh, they do both. <laughs> yeah, they go hand in hand. I guess that makes sense. That won't make sense. Yeah. But yeah, there, there are, there are a, a ton out there, probably like 20. You can, you can Google and they'll, they'll all come up and they all, they all, actually one of our residents did a study. One of her resident research projects was looking at their, like, mm-hmm. their screening questions, you know, to see if they were evidence-based and they're all pretty much the same and they're all super evidence-based. Again, they're kind of more conservative than we would be, right? Because they're just a questionnaire. And we can even take that one step further, right? I know this isn't what this conversation is about, but like those services are popping up for abortion too. Mm -hmm. And if you were to ask me, like, do I think those are safe? A gazillion percent, right? And like, if we can get medications into the hands of people who need them, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, it's great. Another access uh, type thing is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have this image in my head of like the erectile dysfunction company and like you go on and you get approved. And so we fixed your fixed your erection. So in that same package comes the birth control that you're supposed to <laughs> give to the person. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they also, they also do your acne medication. So they'll make you yes. look good so you can go get a date. Yes, This is good. This is good. That's great. The gummy bears. Make sure to no, don't forget the, the gummy bears. That's the most, <laughs> that's the part that I'm in for. Sign me up for those. Yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> well, this is this has been great. I think yeah. we should move on to world famous uh, rapid fire, Julie. Rapid fire. Um, yes, I, I have some good ones. Lori, you talked about barriers to access to care, and one is education. I'm always curious about just briefly, like, 
What was your sex ed experience growing up? Like when you were in, you know, junior high or whenever the hell they started it back in, you and I are similar aged. Actually, I realize that I'm the oldest one on this call right now. So <laughs> adios mio. But anyway, what was your, what was your sex ed experience in a nutshell? Mine was exceedingly good. It's like almost <laughs> laughable good. Uh, I, I grew up. I grew up in the North Shore of Chicago mm. in like a very liberal, like Jewish community where they just like <laughs> talked about everything. Like sure. to the point that like I remember laying on the floor and they had like someone from. I don't know, some LGBTQ organization come mm. in and they were like, remember if you were like lay on the floor and imagine you were in a world of breeders and every, and you were the, like you were the only straight person and you were the only one that could breed. And like, oh, they're like, this is how, a, this is how a gay person feels in this oh, community. I was like, wow. what is happening right now? So yes, yeah. mine, I, I put condoms on like bananas, like, <laughs> like when I was like a child. <laughs> so my, mine was not normal. Maybe that's why I'm as crazy as I am now, but no. it was not a normal. <laughs> Maybe it yeah, forged your path to be a, a yeah, reproductive yeah. Uh, advocate. I think that's, yeah, exactly. that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We love to show that healthcare providers and everybody we have on this podcast don't just do medicine. In fact, that <laughs> we did this podcast because we don't just do medicine. Like it's fun that we are real people. So one of the things that you enlightened us is that you have like a nonprofit that focuses on food. Tell us more about that. That's super cool. Yeah. So uh, my husband and I and some of our friends run this nonprofit called Farm Butcher Table. You can go online and check it out. My husband's in like a far Rural, farm in rural Iowa. So his sex education was very different than mine. And <laughs> can imagine. Zero. So he, he grew up in, he was always been in very cooking and they started raising these pigs. And for the last 10 years, we have thrown these three day music bourbon pork festivals on his farm in Iowa. Fun. All the money goes to a different charity every year. Holy um, shit, where's my invite? <laughs> yeah, you'll be there. You'll be Jeremy's there next salivating. <laughs> <laughs> but we transitioned. We actually bought a farm up in Wisconsin, so closer to, than the nine-hour drive to western Iowa. Mm. Um, and we've started doing the events up there. We just had a big pizza party with um, 75 people last weekend, and all the money went to the Wisconsin um, Women's Fund that funds abortions from, from Wisconsin. So Super cool. Yeah, it's fun. It's very, very fun. So, Laura, I know you're Chicago born and raised. I have a couple quick questions based on that. One, if you could live in a neighborhood other than the one that you live in right now, I feel like a lot of like we have fellows that come work with us just for like one year yeah. and they'll tell me like, I'm living like downtown in like the loop. And I was like, Ugh, the idea of living like in a high rise in the loop makes me want to barf. But really, if it was just for a year, like that would be so rad. We just lost all our loop listeners. <laughs> We're like, go to hell, you stupid, yeah, basically suburbanite from how far north I live. Um, and then also based on that, what would you have if somebody has ever been to Chicago? What would be the the tourist destination that you would recommend? So I live in Logan Square. I think the location is Pilsen. If I had to live somewhere else, it's a great, um, great, great I love hood. Pilsen. Yeah, it's just far from all my friends at this point. Um, <laughs> and number one tourist attraction, you know, I really like the River Cruise. Like, yes, yes I yes. really like it. Like. You know, it's very touristy, but it's like the best so touristy cool. thing to do. I don't even count it touristy because yeah. I learn something new every time yes. I go on those yes. things. You can yeah. also <laughs> learn how much of Dave Matthews Band's shit can be dumped on your head <laughs> exactly. if you're a tourist group from 2008. Exactly. Don't forget. Never now forget. You, like do the, you know, if you want to do something different, you can do the kayak ones now. Yeah. Those it's are pretty awesome. cool. So, really yeah. awesome. Mm -hmm. I love it. Great. Julie, you want to put out a call to action today? 
Yeah, I mean, I think Dr. Larson gave us a ton of really amazing information, um, just touching on the kind of overview of, of contraceptive options that are out there for people that can fit a lot of different needs, dispelling several myths. You know, the big one that answered our, hopefully answered our listeners' question about fertility after contraceptive use, and that sounds like whether or not it's an oral or a patch or a ring or an, an implant or a device should not matter whatsoever. So go have at it. The myth also that the only birth control method that is associated with weight gain is Depo-Provera, the shot. So the other ones are weight neutral. So some really, really great information just talking about different barriers to access to care that are extremely important. Call to action, I'd say, I mean, I always go back, Jeremy, to having people join and contribute to our Facebook group. It's called Friends of Your Doctor Friends. I mean, let's talk about your contraceptive experiences or your sexual education experiences or when your cat knocks over your computer, sorry, um, or your fertility experiences. I think a lot of people have great ways to share and, and I think that would be a great way to do it. And we would love to facilitate and answer more questions in the future from our listeners. Yeah, it's it's definitely a topic that is really helpful when people need resources and everybody tends to have really good resources and recommendations. And, and we brought on Dr. Larson, who is just excellent in this field, but like finding a good doctor and even that can be very intimidating for people when they're trying to find access to these resources. So come on to the Facebook group and we can kind of talk about, you know, who's good and how do I get access and that kind of thing, which would be great. So, all right. Hey, uh, Dr. Larson, where, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? Yeah, so I'm at Rush, close to you guys. I pretty much exclusively do abortion and contraception at this point. So if you're interested in talking to me about either of those things, feel free to come see me. I'm at a clinic on Jackson at Rush. Or if you happen to be having a baby at Rush, you may see me delivering your baby on labor and delivery because that's my <laughs> other hat is that I am a laborist on L&D. Great. Love it. Okay, thanks for joining us, everybody. Healthcare is a human right. Ask your doctor friends. Bye, guys. Peace. The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. Music